Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 39. Last time we introduced you guys to a different, one may even say controversial, perspective of events. In this episode we continue our story in an atmosphere of tension as rumour and whisper surrounding the likelihood of Chinese intervention seemed to invade all discussion. Here we finally see the wave breaking upon Allied hopes, as MacArthur and the Allies were caught dumbfounded by the force of the two Chinese responses, and left confused by the pause in between. We cover roughly the middle of October to the end of November to tell this story, and it is one of immense frustration, indignation and horror as the Korean War becomes, in MacArthur's own words, an entirely new war. Let's see how it all went down then in this somewhat whopper episode, as I take you to the middle of October... 
1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956, more specifically, the Suez Crisis. If you would like to delve into the era of 1956 and find out exactly what the British, the French, the Israelis and the Egyptians were all doing from the early 1950s onwards, culminating in one of the most controversial, disastrous events in post-World War II British-French-Israeli foreign policy, then look no further than the Suez Crisis. And make sure that you go no further than patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, where for just $5 a month, you too can do what so many other history friends have already done and have never looked back since in doing. That is, sign up for $5 a month and access an extra hour of history every single month. Just in case you didn't have enough of me yet, you can, of course, access so much more than just the Suez Crisis and so much more to come because there's already over 20 hours of extra content up there on the Patreon feed and you won't get this anywhere else, guys. Just as surely as you won't get the Age of Bismarck series anywhere else, which is coming out next year, unless I fall off the radar and somehow get overwhelmed by all this quality content I am shoveling into your guys' faces. But in a nice way and not in a rude way at all because I know you guys enjoy it because you've told me so. The Suez Crisis is the end result of a lot of research, a lot of nerding out, and a lot of hard work. But I do feel like it's been worth it, and I really feel like you guys will enjoy it once you listen in. If you are not yet convinced, make sure to listen to the first two free episodes available on the feed a few weeks ago, having been released. Otherwise, guys, remember the address, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You're making history thrive, so you should feel extra good while you're accessing your extra history. In any case, the song of the week this week is Gentle Annie by Carol Clark, released in 1911 for Columbia Records. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back afterwards with episode 39 of the Korean War. He seemed to take great pride in his historical knowledge, but it seemed to me that in spite of his having read much, it was of a superficial character, encompassing facts without the logic and reasoning dictating these facts. Of the Far East, he knew little, presenting a strange combination of distorted history and vague hopes that somehow, some way, we could do something to help those struggling against communism. This was the unflattering verdict that General Douglas MacArthur gave on President 
Harry S. Truman, which he neglected to share with the President in person. As both men returned from their Wake Island meeting, Truman had certainly succeeded in impressing upon his general the impossibility of Chinese intervention. The caveat, of course, was that MacArthur would have to move quickly to expel the remaining North Korean forces in the region, in anticipation of what Mao Zedong might do the following year. This involved General binning his old strategies on the peninsula, which had anticipated Chinese intervention at any point. MacArthur had prepared an amphibious force, his speciality by this point, to land at Wonsan and cut off any potential Chinese intervention. Truman's advice and information cut short these ideas. MacArthur moved these men back to the front line, whereupon he divided his forces and sent them in different directions towards the northwest and northeast. With Korea's mountain range running down the spine of the peninsula, this meant that MacArthur's forces were somewhat divided. But such facts didn't necessarily matter, considering the anemic response which came from the disintegrating North Korean People's Army. By the middle of October 1950, the end result seemed to be a foregone conclusion in Korea. Flushed with success, Truman's intel only conformed with MacArthur's own desire to end the war before Christmas, thus crowning his triumph on the peninsula and leaving no doubt in anyone's mind over who the man responsible was. Even better for Truman's purposes, MacArthur was further convinced of the need to understate any actual Chinese forces, since it was evidently impossible that they could intervene, no evidence to the contrary was worth considering, since it could actually damage the unity of UN forces in the region. In actual fact, thanks to his president, MacArthur had positioned his men perfectly to succumb to a massive Chinese assault. To say such a thing is, I fully understand, a very controversial thing to do, but when we consider the evidence that Truman was almost certainly informed of the developments underway on the Manchurian border, and that his signal intelligence sources had, I would argue, intercepted and then decoded the cable from Mao to Kim Il-sung informing the North Korean leader on the 8th of October of the Chinese intention to intervene in North Korea, it seems impossible then to claim that the president did not expect a massive armed Chinese response. In light of that fact, why, but for the purpose of achieving his desired policy requirement of a lengthy war in Korea, would Truman then misrepresent the facts to his general? If it seems difficult to believe that the president would do such a thing, it is interesting to see how he continued to maintain the act of a looming peace soon coming to Korea. If you don't accept my conclusions about Truman's complicity in essentially setting MacArthur up, to suggest that he was not totally clued in about Chinese troop movements, communications and preparations, moves into the kind of vague picture of communication or intelligence failures which are too often used to explain convenient accidents in American foreign policy. According to the convenient explanations, US intel failed to anticipate the northern invasion in late June, they then failed to learn their lessons, failing again to anticipate either the initial Chinese action in late October, or even more incredibly, the massive full-scale invasion from late November. Any other administration, beleaguered at home or not, would have faced serious questions from its civil servants, not to mention the public and the opposition, had such consistent failures occurred. That Truman faced none of these, and that MacArthur was the only individual to suffer from the circumstances of the Korean War in April 1951, to me paints a certain story, considering the fact that American policy reports were consistently adapted to suit the new intelligence received, and that the American approach underwent drastic changes in the space of those first two weeks in October, it seems impossible that Washington didn't receive new information 
to facilitate these changes. In light of the information received, Truman knew that the Korean War was destined to involve the Chinese. He simply must have known, and even if he didn't know for sure, he must have had his doubts. Doubts which could be eased by some diplomacy towards the Chinese, which those uninformed in the administration had urged, but which Truman had neglected to implement. Even if he had received enough information to cast reasonable doubt, which he certainly had, I would argue, his performance when arriving home after Wake Island tells a certain story. Painting a picture of an imminent peace treaty, which he must have known was impossible, Truman said upon landing on the 17th of October in San Francisco that, I have just returned from Wake Island, where I had a very satisfactory conference with General Douglas MacArthur. I understand that there has been speculation about why I made the trip. There is really no mystery about it. I went because I wanted to see and talk to General MacArthur. The best way to see him and talk to him is to meet him somewhere and talk to him. I went out to Wake Island to see General MacArthur because I did not want to take him far from Korea, where he is conducting very important operations with great success. Events are moving swiftly over there now, and I did not feel that he should be away from his post too long. There is complete unity in the aims and conduct of our foreign policy. General MacArthur told me about the fighting in Korea. He described the magnificent achievements of all the UN forces serving under his command. Along with the soldiers of the Republic of Korea, these forces had now turned back the tide of aggression. I am confident that these forces will soon restore peace to the whole of Korea. The choice in this whole situation, in the scenario of the Korean War, as I have stated before when talking about the general policy of the Truman administration, is that the President's circle, including his intelligence service, his cabinet ministers, and everyone else well-positioned enough to know, were all either breathtakingly incompetent, or they were in fact planning for a certain foreign policy outcome. If I am wrong, then President Truman presided over one of the most disastrous sets of foreign policy errors in American history, not since Pearl Harbor, arguably, had Washington been caught so consistently with his pants down. However, if I am right, then Truman's behaviour pointed towards a certain goal which wasn't merely all-consuming, considering the state of the US defence capability after the Korean War, immensely successful. Indeed, whether you believe my conclusions or not, what had happened when the President and the General departed from one another was that the latter now implemented a new military strategy in light of the intel he had been given. It was this strategy which would come under immense fire from critics of MacArthur's conduct thereafter. Because of MacArthur's arrogance and his underestimation of the Chinese threat, he had left American and UN arms completely exposed to a Chinese attack. A Chinese attack, you'll recall, was the last thing MacArthur had been told to expect. Well, at least until the new year. In addition, since meeting the President, MacArthur had been given no reason to suspect that Truman's information was flawed. After a set of successful offences, Pyongyang fell to the Allies on the 19th of October. As MacArthur and Syngman Rhee entered the communist capital with pomp and ceremony, and Rhee sought to integrate the capital into his now swollen republic, it seemed that the total triumph of the Allies was only around the corner. In fact, after some paratroopers had been dropped further north, between the 20th and 22nd of October, MacArthur believed that victory was only days away. I didn't see any opposition, MacArthur recalled. It looks like it was a complete surprise. It looks like we closed the trap. Closing that trap should be the end of all organised resistance. This war is very definitely coming to an end. The enemy is thoroughly shattered. 
Truman has ever offered congratulations. The progress the forces under your command have made since we met at Wake continues to be most remarkable, and again I offer you my hearty congratulations. The military operations in Korea under your command will have a most profound influence for peace in the world. To this note, MacArthur responded with as much warmth as he could muster, saying, I left the Wake Island Conference with a distinct sense of satisfaction that the country's interests had been well served through the better mutual understanding and exchange of views which it afforded. I hope that it will result in building a strong defence against future efforts of those who seek for one reason or another, none of them worthy, to breach the understanding between us. On this positive note, the relationship between the President and the General seemed to be at an all-time high. Flushed with victory and with the end in sight, it would have been hard for MacArthur to have been in anything other than a good mood. Since in Chon, the triumphs had flowed like water, and now he was positioned to put the cherry on top by eliminating the final vestiges of opposition and securing Rhee as the President of a united Korea, until UN-sponsored elections could take place, of course. Operations in Korea, MacArthur concluded, are proceeding according to plan, and while we draw close to the Manchurian border, enemy resistance had somewhat stiffened. I do not think this represents a strong defence in depth, such as which will materially retard the achievement of our border objective. It shall be my purpose, as I outlined during the Wake Island conference, to withdraw American troops as rapidly as possible. Publicly, the act of disregarding all of the Chinese warnings had been done with surprising ease, in light of the fact that Mao's agents had been warning the imperialist puppets against getting involved in the Korean War since the beginning. One should bear in mind that the United States and the People's Republic of China did not have normal diplomatic relations. Talks were done through the Indians, and once Truman decided they didn't appreciate the Indian ambassador's truths, they discredited his point of view and recast him as some kind of communist sympathiser. As Truman himself put it, writing retrospectively in his memoirs, Mr. Panikar, the Indian ambassador, had in the past played the game of the Chinese communists fairly regularly, so that his statement could not be taken as that of an impartial observer. It might well be no more than a relay of communist propaganda. The keynote on the UN General Assembly resolution was due the following day, and it appeared quite likely that Zhou Enlai's message was a bald attempt to blackmail the United Nations by threats of intervention in Korea. This, indeed, would be how subsequent accounts would justify the second significant policy error of Washington in less than a year. The Chinese bluffed in October, just like they had bluffed before, and anyway, Truman could claim, my general told me that the Chinese would not intervene in the war. So it was that Truman managed to apportion responsibility and blame for the underestimation of the Chinese onto his general rather than his government. Critics could decry Washington's failures, but since MacArthur would be the public face of the Far East UN command, it wouldn't be impossible to answer the calls for justice in the future by dismissing his general in due time. This dismissal indeed would gel conveniently with Truman's genuine disagreement with MacArthur over the nature of the conflict with the Chinese when it did break out. MacArthur, a veteran of war, was unaccustomed to the new terminology emanating out of Washington, that of limited war. To MacArthur, war was war. Limited war meant a reserved, restricted and pathetic response to genuine aggression, 
and he never fully understood why Washington was so determined to stick to it as a policy. This difference in opinion over the best way to proceed in Korea could be lumped in with the historic reservations that the United Nations allies continued to have over MacArthur's command. The 70-year-old veteran was too headstrong, too independently minded, too belligerent to be trusted. For his part, MacArthur made no secret of his belief thereafter that he interpreted Truman's stance at Wake Island before the Korean War and during the course of Chinese intervention as evidence of his president losing his nerve. As MacArthur put it in his memoirs, The conference at Wake Island made me realise that a curious and sinister change was taking place in Washington. The defiant rallying figure that had been President Franklin Roosevelt was gone. Instead, there was a tendency towards temporalising rather than fighting it through. The original courageous decision of Harry Truman to boldly meet and defeat communism in Asia was apparently being chipped away from the constant pounding whispers of timidity and cynicism. The president seemed to be swayed by the blandishments of some of the more selfish politicians in the United Nations. He seemed to be in the anomalous position of openly expressing fears of over-calculated risks that he had fearlessly taken only a few months before. One of the striking aspects of MacArthur's fall was how perfectly, in retrospect, it seemed to fit in to Truman's plans. The general, one could very reasonably argue, was being left behind in the changing circumstances of warfare, where limited, rather than total, war was now becoming the accepted tactic to fight communism. In addition, MacArthur, conveniently enough for Truman, neglected to recognise a key point that the United States wasn't the only power involved. Publicly, Truman had to be seen to consider the other forces of the United Nations, those 16 other governments who had sent men to fight. MacArthur behaved as though the forces under his command were a somehow united force, with the same capacity and ambitions for the Korean War as Washington, or indeed himself. It certainly helped Truman's case that the United States was not the only force involved in Korea. The British remained consistently concerned at any talk of escalating the Korean War, and since MacArthur appeared most likely to escalate the situation, the Allies sided with Truman as trust in MacArthur evaporated. As the trust in MacArthur's control over his own command, even his faculties, diminished, it became that much easier for Truman's contemporaries as well as subsequent historians to believe that it was MacArthur rather than Truman who had been so wrong about the Chinese. The truth, as we have seen, was far more complex. Mao Zedong had begun to send his first volunteer units over the bridges of the Yalu River and into North Korea on the 19th of October. This, incidentally, was the same day that MacArthur and Syngman Rhee symbolically entered Pyongyang. Over the next three weeks, some 300,000 men would cautiously enter North Korea under Mao's orders. Alongside 65,000 reformed and reorganized North Korean soldiers, Mao possessed a formidable force not merely in situ, but also in well-prepared and defensible positions along the northern borders of Korea. To save us drowning in technicalities here, I'm going to try and be as accurate as possible without dropping a load of names on you guys. The last thing I want to do is overcomplicate the narrative we're trying to follow here, and since my knowledge of Korean geography hasn't held me back from understanding what's happening next, there's no reason it should hold you back either. While the image of the Korean peninsula you have in your mind is probably correct, one thing you may not be aware of is just how long the border of North Korea is with China. Along this border, over 600 miles of rivers, forest and more rivers dominate the landscape. 
High mountains, choke points and difficult terrain all populate the region, which was as uninhabited in late 1950 as it was devoid of much natural resources. Some precarious railway lines provided the vital link for the transportation of resources and troops between Chinese territory and Korea, but Mao's tactic over the next few weeks was to make use of the region's great advantages and effectively hide his forces in the very desolate ruggedness of the landscape. One thing the region really had going for it, as Mao well appreciated once before, was how well suited it was for the use of guerrilla warfare. The place would be a sure nightmare for conventional army tactics and would be ideal for a defender to make a stand, especially if he possessed the advantage in numbers and had adequate time to prepare. The Changchun River flowed parallel to the River Yalu and was located 65 miles south of the Chinese border in the northwest part of the peninsula. It was towards the northwest part of the peninsula on the 24th of October that MacArthur's forces were urged to proceed towards having already secured Pyongyang. Meanwhile, other armed forces proceeded to the northeast, tackling one of the major landmarks in the region, the Chosen Reservoir, a large body of water some 100 miles from the Chinese border. Without listing each of the individual divisions' positions, it was in these two broad theatres in the northeast and northwest of North Korea that the Chinese attack eventually broke on the 24th of October. After all, a lot of Mexicans live in Texas. This was the reasoning General Walker attempted to give for the sudden appearance of Chinese forces among the apparently revitalized North Korean People's Army's attack. General Walker, commanding the bulk of the forces in the Northwest, attempted to argue that ethnic Chinese now just happened to be fighting among the ranks of the North Korean armed forces, but his suggestion, pathetic as it now seems, was not the sole offering from an Allied command completely inured to any suggestion of a great Chinese involvement. Hadn't they been told by their commander, by their president for that matter, that this wouldn't happen? Predictably, while the statesmen dallied and attempted to find out what these reports of Chinese involvement could mean, the soldiery on the ground suffered immensely. The sheer shock and confusion to the American, South Korean and foreign detachments of the UN force was as overbearing as the panic which seemed to accompany it. General Pak Sun-yup, whom we last saw in Seoul in late June, greeting the first waves of North Korean soldiers into his capital with a stunned but calm sense of mission, was now faced with yet another set of circumstances that took him utterly by surprise. Having captured some of the ethnic Chinese soldiers, Pak Sun-yup asked in fluent Mandarin if there were many Chinese en route. Many, many, the wiry Chinese prisoner answered. Immediately, Pak reported this to Walker, whereupon he was greeted with that aforementioned pathetic excuse. To Walker's credit, though, the sense of denial did not and could not last long. Over the space of five days, from the 24th to 29th of October, the Chinese wave broke over the different positions in the northwest and northeast, sowing discord, panic and chaos as human waves overwhelmed and surrounded woefully unprepared regiments, accustomed to watching the enemy flee rather than fight at this stage. By the 29th of October, MacArthur's initially strong offensive push towards the Yalu had definitively suffered a setback. Yet, still confident in the information provided by the President, MacArthur discovered that on the 29th, the attack seemed to have ceased. In light of this, on the 4th of November, the General cabled to Washington that 
I recommend against hasty conclusions which might be premature and believe that a final appraisement should await a more complete accumulation of military facts. MacArthur would receive more military facts the next day from General Walker and from his intelligence chief, General Willoughby. Willoughby reported that the Chinese had been spotted moving in great numbers over the bridges on the Yalu River and that they now had the capacity to launch a major counter-offensive. In equally panicked tones, General Walker noted to MacArthur that his advance north of Pyongyang had been based on a calculated risk involving supply almost entirely by airlift. Available supplies were sufficient only for bare maintenance of combat operations against light opposition. It was, in short, a logistical nightmare to go so far north, created by a series of decisions that were themselves based on a set of assumptions, first and foremost, the one which had stated that the Chinese would not intervene. The men on the ground were neither secure in their positions, nor subject to solid supply lines. Since the order of the day for the last two weeks had been speed and advancement, the usual concerns had been relegated to the bottom of the queue. Predictably, MacArthur would now be forced to watch his men pay for these paper-thin preparations. Determined to do all in his power to protect his men, that same day MacArthur felt compelled to send several urgent cables to Washington, enlightening them on the seriousness of the situation. MacArthur's urgent cables arrived in Washington just at the moment when, thousands of miles away, the British government was debating its attitude towards China in light of the evidence which suggested that Mao had intervened. Thanks to the agreement between Washington and London, which stipulated that no change to the policy towards Manchuria be adopted without prior consultation, it was certain that the British would have to be informed. While Truman endeavoured to do so, the British moved to also inform their allies in the United Nations. With the Allied forces pulled back to a better defensive line, and the Chinese apparently reducing their attacks as October became November, the Allies struggled to make sense of the Chinese strategy. Had the Chinese just made a show of force to demonstrate their seriousness, or had they, as some Allied figures liked to imagine, run out of steam? By the morning of the 6th of November, the Chinese were totally silent. This, to MacArthur, was evidence enough that the Chinese had fired their best shot and that it had failed. After trying so hard to overcome his forces, this failure demonstrated that there was little to be feared from the Chinese after all. The advance to the Yalu River would continue. On the 1st of November, MacArthur had reinforced the Allied perceptions of his character by thundering that the Chinese intervention represented one of the most offensive acts of international lawlessness in the historical record. This was, of course, an absurd claim, but its zealous tone can be explained by MacArthur's character, as much as his natural reaction to seeing what he had been assured and believed could not come to pass actually take place. While his reaction was understandable under the circumstances, it also helped build up an important picture of the UN commander. With the Chinese attack apparently slackening, MacArthur demanded that the full force of Allied air attack be used on the Chinese, both along the bridges of the Yalu and into Manchuria itself. It was time to treat the Chinese like combatants after all, if they were content to intervene in this matter. Yet this request was met with indignation from the UN allies, and after a petition from US ambassadors in the relevant capitals as well as in the UN General Assembly, it was clear that attacking the PRC would be considered a bridge too far by all concerned, 
even the British. When confronted with the reluctance of the Allies, MacArthur became close to apoplectic and he cabled the Joint Chiefs to the effect that Men and material in large forces are pouring across all bridges over the Yalu from Manchuria. This movement not only jeopardizes but threatens the ultimate destruction of the forces under my command. The actual movement across the river can be accomplished under the cover of darkness, and the distance between the river and our supply lines is so short that the forces can be deployed against our troops without being seriously subjected to air interdiction. The only way to stop this reinforcement of the enemy is the destruction of these bridges and the subjection of all installations in the north area supporting the enemy advance to the maximum of our air destruction. Every hour that is postponed will be paid for dearly in American and other UN blood. You may remember that as per the provisions of NSC 73, which dealt with the event of Chinese intervention, MacArthur, or the commander on the ground, would be authorised to approve of air attacks on targets within Chinese territory. However, what MacArthur found over the next few days was that his civilian superiors in Washington were hesitant and eventually unwilling to give him this authorization. It was in light of these developments and of MacArthur's urgent cables home that Truman called for a National Security Council meeting to take place on the 9th of November. At the meeting, the subject of MacArthur's orders will be up for debate. Should he be permitted to attack targets in Manchuria after all? And should war with the People's Republic of China be considered as a possible outcome? It was at this meeting that such questions would be answered. It was thus a bit odd that the most notable absence from such a critically important meeting was President Truman himself. To explain Truman's absence, we must remember what the President wanted. While he had to be seen to consider the options and opinions of his staffs, what he wanted was to see the invasion up to Yalu proceed, yet without any kind of provocative action that might draw China into a full-scale war with the United States. Only under such circumstances would the required lengthy war be secured, and the book could be passed to MacArthur in the event that such an advance appeared too aggressive or too strategically unwise. By neglecting to attend the meeting, pleading indisposition, Truman ensured that he wouldn't be put on the spot by his peers. Instead, Secretary of State Dean Acheson headed the meeting on the 9th of November and considered all options before changing the subject with the so-called British proposal, which called for a compromise, whereby a demilitarised zone 10 miles both ways on both sides of the Yalu would be established. In actual fact, the British proposal had called for a demilitarisation of a 10-mile radius only south of the Yalu, not within Manchuria itself. As the British Foreign Office clarified on the 13th of November, by which point the discussion had more than changed, this plan may afford us a means not only of terminating the whole Korean campaign earlier, and thus liquidating a costly military commitment in an area of little strategic importance, but also of satisfying the Chinese that the United Nations have no aggressive intent against Manchuria. By changing the more generous British proposal into one of his own and feigning ignorance, Thereafter of his mistake, Acheson was deliberately pursuing a particular strategy. He knew that Mao would never accept the neutralization of his own territory, but by suggesting this option, he was able to ensure that the meeting broke up inconclusively. Acheson promised those present that he would pursue communication channels with Mao, as well as an appeal through the United Nations. The meeting signaled to America's allies that she was not determined to proceed without considering her options, but Truman's absence and Acheson's sleight of hand ensured that the only option eventually chosen would be that of the advance 
sans air support that Truman had originally wanted and which MacArthur increasingly began to push for. While he sent repeated requests for air cover, MacArthur was somewhat buoyed by the intel which suggested that only as much as 70,000 Chinese, as a maximum, were in Korea. In fact, the number was over 200,000, and the CIA's tendency to understate the Chinese numbers was based on the incorrect assumptions regarding the structure and makeup of Chinese divisions, the record would later claim. The CIA did get it right when it estimated over 700,000 troops in Manchuria, but added that it was not feasible for the Chinese government to move such an enormous force over the Yalu, considering the limitations of Chinese transport and supply. Bear in mind that when MacArthur ordered airstrikes on Chinese targets and inaccurate attacks along the Yalu, he was operating in line with the stipulations of NSC-73, which had put forward the plan of attacking the Chinese in Manchuria if they intervened in the war. If MacArthur had erred, he did so in not acquiring the approval of Washington first, which was also stipulated in NSC-73. As MacArthur no doubt understood though, by passing the question onto the civilians in Washington, urgent time and lives could be lost while the politicians talked around the issue. Here he was acting as per the instructions which would surely be given anyway in the name of the urgencies of the situation. MacArthur, as ever, waded right into the still more sensitive issues of his own independence from the politicians in the process, and neither America's allies nor conventional historical opinion has ever forgiven him for it. Worse for MacArthur's reputation, he became convinced that, in light of the figures that he had been provided with, the Chinese should be attacked where they resided now, before the passage of several months enabled them to establish stronger defensive positions or commit more troops. It was in response to the signals coming out of Washington that MacArthur felt himself pushed harder against the wall. On the 16th of November, Truman stated publicly that the United States did not want war with the Chinese, and when additional conciliatory cables were sent to MacArthur urging restraint, the general began to lose the plot. He commented that, To give up any portion of North Korea to the aggression of the Chinese communists would be the greatest defeat of the free world in recent times. Indeed, to yield to so immoral a proposition would bankrupt our leadership and influence in Asia and render untenable our position both politically and militarily. MacArthur would have to reconcile his sense of military necessity with the political pressures presented by America's allies in the United Nations. Not a single member of the multinational delegation's home governments approved of any escalation of the war. The war was a Korean war. That was what they had signed up for, not a conflict with the most populous nation on earth. In addition, while the plans that certain figures had proposed, particularly in the British military establishment, for a withdrawal to a better defensive line made sense, the act of withdrawing 50 miles southwards was believed by MacArthur, as his outbursts demonstrated, to be a politically unacceptable move, even if it made military sense. MacArthur was fast becoming a problem for British sensibilities, as the communications between Ernest Bevan, the British Foreign Secretary, and Sir Oliver Franks, the British Ambassador in Washington, made clear. Ernest Bevan believed that it was quite clear by the 20th of November that... Mr. Atchison has very little control over General MacArthur, and, if it is of great importance to stop the offensive, then it may be that a message from the Prime Minister may offer the best way of doing this. Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister, 
was an agreement that if necessary he would travel to Washington to impress upon the Americans the extent of their reservations towards the inability of Truman to restrain his general. The next day, the National Security Council and several other high-ranking figures met again, and they seemed to present a strange option, which proved to be the key towards achieving Truman's goal. Again, neglecting to attend the meeting, Atchison took the lead from his president, with the aim of wresting from his peers a certain commitment. This meeting on the 21st of November was much like the previous meeting of the 9th of November, and again, as before, Atchison sought to manipulate the proceedings by proposing a kind of solution which might appease both the British and MacArthur. What if MacArthur advanced in a kind of probing offensive towards the Chinese border, but that in anticipation of a Chinese attack, strong defensive lines would be prepared several miles back if the Chinese did attack? If the Chinese attacked, then these defensive positions could secure the Allied front, whereas if they did not, then the Allied war aims would be secured and the Chinese bluff would have been called. Concern about the mood of their allies was accompanied in the meeting by additional concerns that appeasement could lead to the creation of a belief within Beijing that the Chinese could act with impunity and take advantage of the scared, divided nature of the United Nations forces. For this reason, MacArthur had strongly and bombastically urged the offensive against the Chinese to go ahead in a kind of now-or-never approach, where the general operated on the understanding that the Chinese didn't possess numerical superiority even if they did attack. Of course, Mao's forces were far higher in number than those of the Allies, and they were dug in and organised in the positions where the Allies were now instructed to cautiously make their advance towards. With the Chinese diplomatically mute, save for a refusal to discuss Korea, unless Taiwan was also discussed, it was hard to discern precisely what Mao Zedong would do. As we know, the Chinese leader was determined to unleash the second wave. The decision arrived at the meeting of the 21st of November to proceed in a probing advance towards the Yalu is remarkable because of the fact that those present knew of the extent of Chinese preparation and were much better informed than MacArthur. In light of this and of their approval to effectively push the raft into the storm, it seems likely that many more senior members of the Truman administration were clued into the goal of NSC 68 than initially supposed. If the aim of NSC 68 was to acquire a lengthy conflict from the Korean morass, then the approval given to MacArthur to advance achieved exactly that. Contrary to their expectations though, the second Chinese wave smashed not just their forward soldiers, but also the plans they had to respond to that advance in the first place. In the historical debate which followed the question, who decided to advance to the Yalu, much time was given to the argument revolving around MacArthur's bombastic personality and independently-minded approach to the war in Korea. Because of these character traits, reasoned the historian Richard Rutten, MacArthur's attempt to later pass the blame for the order to advance as a reconnaissance force was based upon a series of falsehoods. Yet, since Rutten was writing in 1967, his case provides a perfect example of the importance of primary source materials, in this case the top-secret minutes of the NSC meetings, which would not be freely available to the public until over a decade after Rudin wrote his account. MacArthur had erred on a grand scale in his advance towards the Yalu, Rudin reasoned, and he had tried after the event to blame Washington's instructions for his own failures. Yet, we know that Dean Acheson gave the approval for such an advance in a top-secret meeting on the 21st of November, thanks to subsequently released documents 
vindicating MacArthur's argument many years later that he had been ordered, rather than having decided himself, to advance towards the Yalu. That it seemed so unlikely MacArthur could have been actually telling the truth is a testament to the effect which President Truman's efforts to share the blame for the Korean War have had on the historical record. Rutan's peace, while it seems on the surface to add further weight against MacArthur, in fact provides us with a reinforcement of the lesson in the school of history. Sometimes, one must wait for an event to truly become history before writing about it. In MacArthur's case, his role wasn't considered old enough news until the documents surrounding those heady days were finally declassified in 1978. Even now, many historians have failed to make proper use of them and the new light on the Korean War that they provide. Within days, on the 28th of November, confronted by the unanticipated size of the Chinese offensives across the length of the northwest of the Yalu, MacArthur was also brought face to face with the apex of his own failures. Having relied upon the evidence of over a month before, he had manifestly failed to appreciate the scale of the danger. His recorded foibles did the rest, as they led him to represent all that seemed wrong with American policy in Korea. As the Allied lines disintegrated, MacArthur seemed to resign himself to his fate, whatever that may be. The order for retreat went out across the Allied lines. A dejected Allied general cabled home to Washington on the 28th of November 1950 that All hopes of localization of the Korean conflict to enemy forces composed of North Korean troops with alien token elements can now be completely abandoned. The Chinese military forces are committed in North Korea in great and ever-increasing strength. No pretext of minor support under the guise of volunteerism or other subterfuge now has the slightest validity. We face an entirely new war. Indeed, MacArthur may have been staring into the military and political abyss, or of the doom of his own career, but back in Washington we must assume that the Truman administration were privately content. Here now was the massive Chinese response that Truman had been looking for. With Mao's assault crumpling the UN forces like paper, the battle would certainly be a difficult one, but with this new war and the new enemy that directed it, there could be no question of slackening in their defence now. Resources would have to be directed, bills approved, and monies voted on a ludicrously grand scale. Just as Truman, Acheson, and several other figures had planned, Mao's intervention represented not just the end of the old phase of the Korean War, but the end of the old American policy towards communism. Henceforth, containment was to be the byword of American foreign policy. Mao Zedong, while he couldn't have known it at the time, had just made it all possible. In the next episode, we'll pick up from this point in the history of the Korean War, where the shock and terror that the Chinese offensive evoked was matched only by the search for scapegoats and solutions, atomic or otherwise. I hope you'll join me next time, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 39 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 